0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. Grass-fed beef raised on California's Central Coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com.
2: This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Lisa Haushofer, standing in for Koro Lee. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Our new issue features articles and special sections on ingredients from salmon to chicken, taste and technology in East Asia, and excursions and exploration of food and mobility, as well, Gastronomica continues to publish its COVID dispatches, short portraits of early responses to the food crises of this pandemic. For six weeks, join hosts from the Gastronomica editorial collective as we talk with authors. My guest this week is Dr. Adrian Bitar. Dr. Bitar is a lecturer in American Studies at Cornell University. She is the author of Diet and the Disease of Civilization, published in 2018 with Rutgers University Press, a cultural history of American diet books. She continues to research dieting trends and is currently working on a new book on lab-grown and plant-based meat. Adrienne, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: We are today discussing your article, Decoding Miracle Food Cures for COVID-19, which is available in the current issue of Gastronomica. And in the article, you embed the story of miracle food cures within the context of food during the pandemic more broadly. You say that um, the pandemic was at once a communication story, a social media story, a political story, and importantly, a food story. So maybe can you start by um, painting a, a picture for us of the significant role of food during the pandemic, why do
3: you think the pandemic is also so centrally a food story? Of course, I think one thing that astonished many of us when the pandemic first sort of hit home in March was how how broadly it reached into so many aspects of our lives. You know, it felt like the whole world was somehow crumbling, and I think for many people that was first sort of understood in the empty grocery store shelves, in the somehow the the panic buying, the hoarding, the idea that our food system, seemingly so robust, is actually vulnerable to crises of this kind. And with that also, our sort of social world, which often revolves around food, was either, you know, either disintegrated or was upended, you know, our routines of going to coffee shops and restaurants suddenly no longer possible. Our routines of our daily grocery store shop suddenly no longer possible. And I think that encouraged people to sort of turn inward, just think about what are the resources that I do have available to me, even if I can't go to restaurants and grocery stores, maybe I'll sort of take a renewed interest in home cooking. Maybe I'll, you know, think about what are the things that I can do for myself uh, during this time of crisis and I, I see that in some of these food cures as well in which you know clearly n- normal everyday people don't have the resources available to large pharmaceutical companies but you know without any other sort of sense of recourse you can turn inward to your to your pantry and say, well, what, what do I have available to me? Maybe lemon, maybe baking soda, maybe peppers. Those are the things that I can sort of wield in my own personal fight against this scary, uh, scary pandemic.
2: Yeah. One of the things that really struck me about the article was just the sheer quantity of miracle food cures that that you mentioned um, that propped up. So from boiled garlic water, rasam curry, fresh mango, papaya, durian, um, the alkaline foods that you just mentioned, um, all the way to the, the uh, infamous egg spit cure, which I'd, I'd be very curious to hear more about. And And you know, you mentioned that even the president of the United States at one point recommended drinking household disinfectants. Um, so you, you really paint this vivid picture of us, of an alternate, alternative universe of, of food cures that parallels in some way this medical universe of pharmaceutical treatments and vaccines. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came across Um, these colorful miracle cures, where and how did they circulate
3: and how did they pique your interest? I mean, that's an excellent question because it was actually fairly difficult to find fake news. I mean, so much in the media, it's talking about the the infodemic as the World Health Organization likes to put it, um, or this sort of deluge of fake news and misinformation, disinformation. But actually, if you try to find, as a historian, I, I wanted to find the primary sources. I didn't want to just see fact checks or debunking articles. I wanted to actually find the sources. And it was it was surprisingly fairly difficult, um, not only because many of these uh, bogus cures are flagged by social media sites like Facebook and Twitter as misinformation, rightly so, but also because they're sort of in these odd corners of the Internet that most of us you know, unless we're in that world, we don't really have access to. So I first tried to, um, I mean, I first identified a few popular ones and then by going down these social media rabbit holes, I was able to sort of find or discover the lesser known ones like the the garlic water or the curry or the durian or, uh, there's others I didn't mention in the article like grapefruit and, um, different forms of, uh, using also household drugs and, and, and cleaning supplies, which you know, tends to be pretty dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was actually fairly difficult to find. And one of the things I had to do was just look on public posts on Facebook, um, coming from, uh, uh profiles based in other countries. Uh, I found it to be a particularly rich and diverse source of miracle cures coming out of Nigerian Facebook pages. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, very interesting to see, but then also you could see that they were circulating in, in across across Africa, across um, across Southeast Asia. Primarily, the, the places that I found them the, to be the most sort of popular, but they also I also found uh, cures that were definitely circulating in the United States and and Europe as well. Um, that that and there was a there was quite a bit of, of commonality between these between these two sort of rich sources of information.
2: Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things you you don't do is you you, you resist. I think the def- temptation to just sort of dismiss them and and simply laugh about them, which I think many of us you know did when we came across them. But you go deeper than that, and you invite us to ask, what is it that makes these cures uh, so numerous, so unstoppable? Why do they crop up in such impressive numbers? And in the article, you hone in on, on two food miracle cures in particular that you use to make your case. Um, and the first of these is the Israeli secret lemon baking soda tea cure. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, so can you maybe start by uh, describing this cure for
3: us? So how does it work? Sure. Um, the This is one that I think kind of uh, resonated with me personally, because I have, I have spent time studying diets and I'm familiar with the master cleanse, which was, mm-hmm. um, uh, which has been a, sort of a staple of American dieting culture since the seventies. It was popularized by, uh, Beyonce, uh, Knowles in, uh, you know, about 15 years ago. And it also uses lemon juice as a sort of magical ingredient that can induce rapid and permanent weight loss, you know, that's that's the claim, right? Yeah. So when I first came across this Israeli baking soda lemon secret tea cure, um, I was similarly like, oh, this this resonates with the with the sort of legacy of the Master Cleanse. So in sum, um, this post was a screenshot that used various emojis, and it was circulated along mainly along channels and WhatsApp, which is very difficult to regulate, unlike. Facebook and Twitter, which you know have more public-facing sort of platforms, where the the sort of the, the platform can can flag these things as disinformation, mm-hmm. uh, these large group chats with WhatsApp forwards is very is a much more difficult sort of corner of the internet to regulate. And the cure is this: it says he told them a super news. This is how it arrived, and this is how I send it. In Israel, no death from C nineteen. The cure for the C-19 virus, or the way to eliminate it, was achieved. Information comes from Israel. There, this virus did not cause death. The recipe is simple. Lemon, bicarbonate, mix and drink as hot tea every afternoon. The action of the lemon with hotter baking soda immediately kills the virus, completely eliminates it from the body. These two components alkalize the immune system, since when night falls, the system becomes acidic and defenses lower. That is why the people of Israel is relaxed about this virus. Everyone in Israel drinks a cup of hot water with lemon and a little baking soda at night, as this is proven to kill the virus. I share it with all my family and friends so that none of us gets the virus. Get the virus, excuse me. I leave it to your criteria.
2: <laughs> I love that element as well of the the um, recommendation to the to the family and friends. So it's a kind of kind of in cure um and, and inside knowledge cure um mm-hmm. and, and then one of the things that you do is that you you argue that the appeal of this cure partly lies in its ability to sort of tap into cultural currents and long-standing beliefs about food including the history of lemons and acids and sour foods and the history of baking soda um, so can you say a bit more maybe about how the cure mobilizes these ideas
3: I like how you put that. It does tap into it, it mobilizes, it sort of speaks or resonates or echoes. You can use all sorts of verbs here. With longer traditions, I think of um, both of sour fruit foods, but also particularly of lemons, because uh, during the, the great, um, uh, the, the, the other sort of touchstone pandemic, the 1918 uh, influenza epidemic, um, lemon sucking was considered to be preventative uh, to uh, to contracting uh, influenza, and it became sort of a folk cure uh, for people suffering from more mild symptoms. And there was a great article recently analyzing how the citrus industry sort of capitalized on the nascent interest, interest in lemon sucking. So you'll see a few pretty colorful images of um, of, you know, beautiful young women sort of taking the sour juice directly out of the lemon as a preventative measure for contracting influenza. And that sort of sort of magical aura surrounding lemons, I think trickles down the last hundred or so years uh, being picked up in this master cleanse diet, which I mentioned earlier, which is a combination of um, a specific type of maple syrup large quantities of lemon juice and cayenne pepper. And it's a liquid diet uh, Sort of that, you know, and it sort of periodically sort of explodes on the dieting scene uh, to sort of induce uh, induce really rapid weight loss. Um, and that, that kind of uh, aura of lemons, I think, persists to what now we see in this cure, which is the lemon baking soda cure, which mixes this very sort of sour um, juice with um, another ingredient, which has also been sort of hailed as a cure all, which is baking soda. Together, and this concoction is supposedly uh, well equipped to fight the virus.
2: <laughs> yeah, one one wonders how where we might end up with the the ever more combinations of of different sort of mm-hmm. old historical um, cures. Um, and then another central insight of the article is that um, you argue that uh, not only do these cures tap into Long-standing beliefs about uh, food, the properties of food, but also into sort of recalcitrant tropes and racist assumptions about groups of people. Uh, for example, the Israeli secret lemon baking soda tea cure, you argue, is rooted in a long history of anti-Semitism. Can you tell us about that aspect?
3: Yes. And I think that's why it's so important to not laugh off or dismiss these as being sort of naive or, you know, clearly not written in language that's been edited closely, because you'll see that I think it's, it's very easy for educated people to, to laugh off or to dismiss or to sort of assume that they know better um, than the people who might be adhering to these sort of cures in which there seem to be millions Um, because what many of these cures do and not all of them by any means is they sort of package a fairly benign so-called cure. I mean, who, who's really going to be hurt if someone decides to drink some lemon juice every night. And it's just part of the, you know, part of the ritual or part of the theater theater or part of the choreography of, you know, hoping that you don't get this, this virus. I mean, it's not in and of itself damaging unless it, detracts from other sort of proven public health measures. But what we see, for example, in this particular cure, is that it repackages older tropes that I think are familiar to people with, you know, who are knowledgeable about anti-Semitism or anti-Jewish racism, that there is somehow this secret conspiracy of Jews to to hide or to obscure or to sort of keep valuable things to themselves. And that is a very ugly trope. It's a very old trope. And even though this cure might seem sort of cute, you know, in a way, Mm -hmm. it re-inscribes this idea that the people of Israel somehow own or are privy to very valuable knowledge yet are not sharing it with the world. What's left unsaid is why, I mean, we don't know why apparently the people of Israel is relaxed about this virus because everyone is doing this. We don't know why they're not sharing this very valuable information. I mean, if, I mean that would be just such a gift if we could all cure this virus by drinking some lemon juice and baking soda together. But what's left unsaid is, okay, this makes sense given the longer history of anti-Semitic thinking about Jews keeping secrets to themselves. And that's where it gets dangerous. And that's where I think it also gets its power because for every cure that does go viral, like the lemon baking soda cure, there's probably a hundred that don't ever circulate to this extent. So that's where it gets very, very interesting because you'll see that there's this ugly and sometimes unsurprising packaging of sort of older tropes with almost coincidental um, cures, but that is why this particular cure, I think, has gotten so much traction. I have to say that's so
2: fascinating. Um, Thank you for that. Before you tell us about the second food miracle cure um, that you wrote about in the article, Adrienne, we are going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment.
1: This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's Central Coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch Beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select whole food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch Beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com.
2: And we are back. This is Meant to be Eaten with Lisa Haushofer talking with Adrienne Bittar about her article, Decoding Miracle Food Cures for COVID-19, available in the current issue of Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Adrienne, you focus on two food miracle cures in particular to make your argument in the article. And the second miracle food cure that you tell us about is the Yoruba Nigerian hot pepper stew. Can you tell us what this uh, Miracle Food Cure consists of exactly? How is how is it supposedly effective against COVID?
3: Sure. Um, so unlike the baking soda lemon tea cure, which is, I am not sure where it came from. I'm <laughs> fairly confident it did not come from Israel. Uh, the Yoruba Nigerian hot pepper stew cure um, is attributed to a specific individual, Um and there is a sort of letter that he wrote that was circulated on WhatsApp, that was circulated on Twitter, that was circulated on Facebook, and that was also sort of reinterpreted on, a, on YouTube, uh, YouTube videos. Um, I'll read a, just a few sentences from it. Um, mm-hmm. It says, um, "It says the cure and prevention." The title is "Cure for Coronavirus." The black man's nature is anti-coronavirus already, especially those that have taken meals or soups rich in pepper over time. Coronavirus can be seen as pepper deficient syndrome, and like we know, the whites and maybe Asians know how to give big, big names to minor illnesses. The easiest cure for coronavirus is a nice meal or soup rich in pepper, e.g. pepper soup, yoruba stew, etc., which Africans are mostly used to already, i.e., Give a patient suffering from coronavirus hot meals rich in pepper. And in less than 24 hours, he or she will be fine. Please do not take this lightly. Stick to this and you are covered. Yours faithfully. And it's signed. Okay. So the concept here is that, um, you know, it's, it, it speaks to a lot of different sort of very sort of tricky politics um, about race and about the pandemic. Um, The concept here is that people who have already ingested large quantities of these peppers over time, particularly in the form of this particular stew, are somehow uh, immunized against coronavirus. Um, And the person that is responsible for this cure, um, he seems to have a sort of stake in the matter because... He has a sort of web presence. He has a Facebook presence, and he does sell blockchain. He does. He has his own sort of cryptocurrency. So there is a more sort of clear follow the money trail. But why there would be incentive to spread this kind of rumor, to spread this kind of uh, you know miracle cure, um, but it also speaks to sort of longer history of understanding the powers of pepper, which actually sort of inflict this small pain on the palate. Um, and um, the the concept here is that, you know, some people are more, uh, are, you know, some have stronger constitutions that are more able to withstand and enjoy uh, these these flavors, these peppery flavors.
2: Mm, it's fascinating. Um, and it, it really, I mean, we've been mentioning your previous work a few times now, um, and it, it really... Um, resonates with with your previous work in which you read diet books as texts. So you talk about um, the stories that diets tell. um, uh, You argue that there are narratives of of transformation, of salvation. Are there, do you think, any narrative tropes to be found in these COVID miracle food cures at all?
3: Yes, I like how you put that. Yes, I think one of the sort of sensitivities I picked up reading all these diet books is to understand them as stories Mm -hmm. and stories that people really believe in. And then also ascribe to and live by. And the concept that you can both improve your health or transform your immune system by taking meals rich in pepper or by being very diligent and every night without, fail, drinking a tea made of lemon juice and baking soda really empowers the individual to sort of reclaim their own health. And in this case, I think that's not a particularly um, useful public health strategy because especially with a pandemic, it's not really an individual, it's not really the the sort of responsibility of the individual to do the sort of large-scale, you know, public health measures that have been shown to really, you know, tamp down the virus. But there is a sense of sort of speaking, especially to American ideas about sort of bootstrapping and individual responsibility and the idea that you can transform yourself if you just work hard and you're diligent and you believe and you trust authority, but you also take that sense of authority and make it your own sort of your own responsibility. And I see that in diets a lot. And so instead of you know, for the most part, it's not, you know, let's not transform the food system or eradicate food deserts or, you know, recast school lunch policy. It's rather, well, you need to eat this for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then you can be responsible for your own health. And then in so doing improve the health of society. So it's very much a sort of negotiation of authority from sort of bottom up to top down.
2: Great. Um, I'm afraid we're almost out of time, but before we go, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, some new research questions that you're interested in at the <laughs> moment? For example, this story about lab-grown and plant-based meat. Um, and is there any link to the food miracle cures for you?
3: you know, I think there's a sense of optimism um, that it might sort of translate from these miracle cures to my current work with um, uh, meat substitutes that, you know, if you just, it, it can be kind of naive in some sense, um, but there's a sort of technological utopianism or technological optimism that I see in the plant-based and lab-grown meat, which is that just, you know, with human ingenuity and enough R&D dollars, um, we can really transform the food system from, and not necessarily have to worry about issues like consumer acceptance or, um, other sort of unexpected consequences that might arise from, from growing meat, um, based on, you know, just the harvesting of animal cells and not in animals themselves. So I see a sense of optimism, um, in both cases, um, the politics of, of it, of course, are very different, but my current research looks at sort of a cultural history and then also analysis of, uh, of. Uh, lab-grown and plant-based meat, which, as you know, as I'm sure you know, listeners will know, has really taken off in the pandemic. I mean, McDonald's just made the big announcement that they're going to introduce the McPlant to yeah. their outlets, um, and I think I do see you know real change on the horizon surrounding um, our meat consumption.
2: Well, that sounds fascinating. I can't wait to to read about that, um, Adrian. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, It's been a pleasure to talk to you, and listeners can read the full article in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, Volume 20.4, which was published this month, November 2020. For more details, please visit gastronomica.org.
1: Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community?